You're listening to the New World of Work podcast by the McKinsey Global Institute. We're exploring the future of work, how automation technologies, including artificial intelligence and robotics, could disrupt how we work, where we work, the skills and education we need to work, and what we can do to prepare for these transitions today. Hello and welcome to our latest podcast in the series on the new world of work. Today, we're going to be listening to a conversation between Michael Chewy, a partner at the McKinsey Global Institute, Zoe Baird of the Markle Foundation, and Tim O'Reilly of O'Reilly Media. The conversation took place at the Churchill Club in San Francisco, and the three panellists are discussing a new report by the McKinsey Global Institute on the future of work, which is called Jobs Lost, Jobs Gained, Workforce Transitions in a Time of Automation. I think a lot of us have seen a lot of headlines that worry about a a robot job apocalypse. And they're scary headlines because you hear these things, we're not going to have any jobs. Did anybody see the robot that did the backflip, right? You say, gosh, you know, what can these machines not do? And that's scary. And I don't know about you, but when I'm scared, I return to my roots and start doing some analysis. No, anyway, I do do some analysis. (laughs) So at the McKinsey Global Institute, we have this tick. We like to analyze things that scare us. So, um, you know, one of the things that we did earlier this year was publish a report which was looking at the potential for automation across the entire workforce. Now, one of the things that we wanted to do was not only look at every occupation, but all of the constituent activities within every occupation. And so for each of those, we scored it against 18 different capabilities which potentially could be automated, looked at over 2,000 different detailed work activities across almost 50 countries in the world, and tried to understand the potential for automation going forward. And it is considerable. If you look out to 2030, there's a a wide range of different scenarios. By the way, we view this as not something that you just observe. This isn't like astronomy. This is more like chess. Which scenario actually obtains will vary depending on the choices we all make, the choices we make as citizens, the choices we make as business leaders, the choices that we make as workers. But that said, if you look out to 2030, perhaps up to 30% of the work that we currently do could in fact be done by machines. But the midpoint of our automation scenario ends up being 15. But it's actually a very different scenario depending on the country. In countries that have lower wage rates, we expect the rate of automation to be lower because then the business case for automation to be uh, less compelling. And in countries such as the United States, Germany or Japan, actually we expect it to be quite a bit higher. And so potentially in the US, we might be looking at a percentage in the 20s. So that does bring up the question, Will there be enough work for people? And again, we're not in the business of predicting the future, but we did want to just analyze things at this fine-grained level and ask ourselves, can we imagine scenarios where there is enough work to offset the work that would be automated, potentially, by all these brilliant machines? And we looked at a number of different drivers of work. You know, Tim O'Reilly, who will come up in a moment, talks about what's the work that needs to be done or what's the work that needs doing. And if you look at a bunch of factors that are going to occur in the world or potentially could occur in the world, you know, one is rising prosperity. Another billion people will enter the consuming class, particularly in developing markets, over the next 10 or 20 years. They'll all need more media. They'll all need more cars. They'll need more apparel. That will drive additional work. Aging, by the way, which we worry about as a productivity drag, also will generate more work. People will need more health care. We also talk about increasing investment infrastructure in buildings. Again, we know that's necessary in developing markets and developed markets. 
And there's some other things that we think about too, such as the development and deployment of technology and other potential scenarios. If you have more women in the workforce, you might actually start to have a, a bunch of what we call unpaid work at home, whether it's childcare or cleaning, cooking, et cetera, that might actually be part of the market going forward and that could generate uh, additional work. And so when you actually compare those two things, that's just a limited number of things. We always know that there are new jobs being created, new activities being created that could potentially generate more labor demand. If you look at all those, there are definitely scenarios where there is enough work for people to do, even net of the things that might be automated. That said, a different question is, can we get people from doing what they are doing now to the jobs of the future? And we think that's a huge challenge. In our midpoint scenario around the world, 75 million people might need to change occupational categories. But that could range up to 375 million, depending on the pace of automation around the world. Again, different scenarios potentially could happen. So that's a huge challenge. And quite frankly, we haven't necessarily solved the ability for, to retrain this scale of people you know, in the mid-career, past their second two decades of life. And then finally, another question to be asked is, what about incomes? You know, people talk about inequality. And again, we can't predict what everyone's going to make. But if you look at the net of the trends that we looked at, we've seen historically in the past few years a hollowing of the middle, the middle wage occupations being under the most pressure. Given the things that we've modeled, that might potentially continue as well. And that's another set of challenges to think about. And with that, let me bring up some smart people. Tim, let me start with you. Um, You've mentioned before that there's no shortage of things that need doing. And I mentioned basically seven drivers of potential additional labor demand. Could you talk a little more about other places where you see work that needs doing? Well, first of all, I do really want to point everybody to uh, you, one of your graphs in here. I think it was Exhibit 13, which just jumped out at me, where it says, rising consumer incomes are the largest source of job creation. You know, and that is, if people have money, they will spend it. So we need to make sure that we get money into the hands of ordinary people, not into the hands of just a few people. So in some sense, inequality and jobs are very tightly connected. Um, because to me, there are three big drivers of jobs. And the first one is just this stuff that needs doing, for Christ's sake. You know, when people say there's not going to be enough jobs, they go, there's plenty of work. Just look around. You know, there's so much that needs doing, and we have to ask ourselves, why aren't we doing it? You know, what are the systemic obstacles? We're going to have to deal with climate change. You know, we're going to be rebuilding every few years, you know, until we figure out, oh, we actually need to start moving people. We already have millions of displaced people in the world. We're going to have a lot more of them. We're going to need to build new, whole new cities. Look at the work just in the energy transition dealing with climate change. Uh, so that's one, the transition in our economy as we have aging populations that we have to deal with, the possibility of disruptive transformation of our healthcare industry from kind of the old factory model where you put all the big heavy equipment in one place to one where we can actually do a diagnosis with a smartphone. Reinventing the economy to solve real problems for real people will produce plenty of work. But the second thing is the one that's related to that rising income graph, and that is that if you look at the history of, of every technological innovation, we created new um, jobs because as we made one thing into a commodity, we found a way to make that commodity valuable again. We made more cloth, and we invented fashion, 
so that people bought new kinds of clothes and bought clothes more frequently. Uh, you know, we didn't say, okay, you've got your one suit of homespun, we're done. You know, we didn't say, oh wow, we only need, you know, 2% of the population to produce food, there's no more food industry, all get your oatmeal. Well, you look around in a rich society, you give people money, they go, entertain me with food, make it really special and good, and we sell ideas. Food is food plus ideas. This isn't just coffee, it's coffee from this amazing grower in Sri Lanka, and it's roasted by this amazing roaster in Emeryville, and it's worth more than any other coffee because it's unique and special. We've decommodified our commodities with this creative economy, uh, which is what people will do if they have money to spend. There's no reason whatsoever for us to run out of work except for the fact that we've failed to circulate uh, the fruits of productivity well enough. So there's plenty to go around, it's just not going around. Great. So let me bring you in. In some of our research, what we have generally found is the skills and or education necessary for the new jobs going forward is going to be higher than they are for the jobs of today. At the Markle Foundation, you're studying as well as implementing this idea of trying to uh, prepare people for the next jobs. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing there? Sure. I, let me step back from the vision and the data to talk about the people. So. Uh, we all know that people love their smartphones and almost everybody has one now, no matter what your income level. In fact, Jeff Weiner has an amazing quote about someone he hired at LinkedIn who created an app for homeless people to better find homeless shelters. I mean, that's an incredible statement. And uh, people stream video, they stream music, but at the same time, people feel completely disenfranchised from the economic benefit of these tools. Uh, the gap between people's feeling of inclusion in the digital economy and their feeling of being left behind is growing. It's wide. Uh, there was a recent Pew poll where 78% of Americans just last month said that they expect that automation is going to drive that gap even wider and people are deeply concerned about it and rightly because the McKinsey data has, showing, has shown automation has taken away I think the number was six million middle skill jobs since 2007 so there's a huge disruption there's a huge uh, disconnect between people's enthusiasm for technology and their feeling of benefiting from it. We've been telling people for decades, go to college, get a four-year degree, and you'll succeed. And 70% of Americans do not have a BA, and that has been true for decades. So the singular message we've had for people hasn't worked. At the same time, we did a poll last year where we showed that 87% of Americans believe that they need lifelong skills training in order to succeed. But they look out at the universe of what's available to them and they see that most education ends at 18 or 22. They don't think financial aid is available to them. They go to an unemployment office or a workforce center and the people there don't know what digital economy jobs look like. So we are at an inflection point where the people in this community have a tremendous opportunity to contribute and it's a very exciting business model as well. And that is to create 
the second wave of digital disruption of jobs, to use the very same technologies, automation and AI, to transform the labor market so it works for people. So just briefly, a couple of examples of what that would look like. We've actually started to do some of this with LinkedIn in, in an effort called Skillful. If you take an employer and enable them to identify the skills they need in a job, rather than looking for the bachelor's degree, they can open up a much larger pool of potential applicants with potentially greater targeted skills to fill those jobs and make more people eligible for the jobs that exist. There's six million unfilled jobs in this country. Um, the potential for creating businesses that enable people to compete based on skills rather than the increase of the use of the bachelor's degree is tremendous. And we need all kinds of tools and apps and innovations coming out of this community to enable that to happen. Um, we see now that the opposite is the direction that we're going. So an entry-level computer systems administrator job, 45% of people who hold those jobs have a bachelor's degree, but 75% of job postings call for a bachelor's degree. So they rule out 75% of Americans even being considered for those jobs. Similarly, we need data and tools for educators to train more rapidly to the skills that are needed. We need social media to show people what these jobs look like so they can envision themselves in them. And there's just a tremendously rich um, potential, but it really is uh, an ambition we should hold to create a second wave of digital disruption of jobs. Can we spend a minute just talking about what Skillful is, just as a concrete example of what we might talk about? Skillful started in Colorado. We went live a year ago, and already we have over 100 businesses using the um, tools that we've developed, and McKinsey was a significant part of this in revealing the skills that are needed for uh, jobs in advanced manufacturing, IT across all sectors from healthcare to financial services. We're moving into healthcare jobs and retail, and we're also moving out into other states. Um, there's a tremendous interest among governors in this because they look at their labor markets, they know they're broken, they're trying to figure out how to enable companies to get the workers they need so that they can grow and how to enable people to feel that they're part of the digital economy and at the same time drive educators toward training the right, to the right things. So Skillful is basically a systems integrator with an ambition to do that based on a skills-based labor market. I just wanted to add, uh, you know, companies need to make a commitment to training people rather than just saying, well, I can't find them. If you think about you know, at lifelong education, it's gonna happen in the workforce. And I think we need to start thinking more about education as a benefit. Each successive wave of automation in the past has led actually to taking people out of the workforce and putting them into education. First, we took small children out of the fields and factories and smokestacks and chimneys, and we said, oh, we're gonna send you to school. And then we, we took you know, high school age kids out of the fields and sent them to school. And then we took our returning GIs and we said, we're gonna send you to school. Now we need to basically say, we're gonna hire you and we're gonna send you to school 
when you're on the job. We're going to train you. Why is it this idea that, well, sorry, I just can't find anybody. Go no, make them. You know? I actually think, Tim, that employers are very interested in training yeah. their workforce. We need to think about skills. What mm -hmm. we really need to get to is a modular, disaggregated network kind of yes, environment absolutely. where people can pick up skills in one sector and demonstrate in another that the skills totally. they have are valuable to fill those yeah. jobs. Yeah, uh, we need to get away from the credential and just go, okay, can you do this thing? And, right. and how do you right. prove that you can do it? And how do we bring you along so that you can do it? Let's come back to another topic that uh, you know, we touched on briefly, which is about what are the rewards of working? What are the rewards of being in the, in the workforce? Tim, can you talk a little bit about your views on you know, returns to capital versus labor? I think one of the things that I, I've started to think a lot about recently is the fact that our financial statements uh, are even designed so that we basically show people as a cost and the return to capital as the goal of the system. You know, we talk about the bottom line. Well, it's the residual, what's left over, and it belongs to the owners of capital. There's a wonderful book, uh, which I just discovered, because I used a line in my own book, I said, one day we will look back on the divine right of capital in the same way that we now look back on the divine right of kings. And, uh, and somebody read that and said, oh, have you read Marjorie Kelly's book, The Divine Right of Capital? And it's this fantastic book written in 2001, and it's about financial statements. And you know, like, what if our financial statement said, here's the return uh, to labor, and here's the return to capital? And that was, you know, they showed both of them as outputs of the business, as opposed to one as an input and a cost to be minimized. And you think about how differently we would organize the economy. And I started thinking, there actually are examples of this hiding in plain sight. And I go, well, here's Walmart, and here's Costco. Uh, you know, here's Columbia Sportswear and here's REI. What do they do similarly, you know, what do they do differently? And you kind of look, REI is fascinating, it's a co-op. And they actually outperform their, you know, public market competitors in any real market, you know, better sales, uh, same store sales, better sales growth, but they also pay their people more and they give the, the, the bulk of their profits back to their customers in the form of a rebate, so they're not very profitable, but they don't have to because they're a co-op. And you kind of go, so here's capitalism that's hiding in plain sight, that's not, that's kind of doing it like Marjorie Kelly describes, where the returns are not just to capital, the returns are, you know, clearly to customers and to employees, and, and it works. You know, and I kind of want to, I feel like there's probably a lot more of those that we just don't notice because we're so enmeshed in the system as it works uh, today without realizing that it could be different. So you are in the privileged position of being able to connect with leaders both on the policymaker side as well as the business side and civil society. What are you hearing with regard to incomes and concrete actions that can be taken there? Well, one of the things I'm hearing is very disturbing, which is a remarkably rapid movement by both Democratic and Republican policymakers that is looking at regulating automation, AI, technology companies generally. I think that is in part a reaction to this question of, you know, where's the wealth going? But perhaps even more um, a maturity of the industry. It's been true for pretty much every major industry that it's gone through a period of 
innovation and then it becomes an established business and then there's a period of uh, monopoly and you can look at the railroads, you can look at every form of early communications this fits with. And then there's a period of regulation. And I think there's a question now of whether it is possible to enter what may be a period of regulation. You see it obviously with the EU, which is way ahead of the US. Um, is it possible to enter a period of regulation that doesn't inhibit um, innovation, growth, and competition? And to my mind, addressing this felt public need for the opportunity to participate in the economic benefits of the digital economy is going to be the linchpin to whether or not this is done right because the movement toward people feeling disenfranchised uh, is rapid and it's not playing out well. I've been very concerned, for example, about how to address the question of recruitment of children into terrorism over the internet or sex trafficking over the internet. Um, those are very discrete problems, but these economic issues are not discrete problems. They could comprehensively affect uh, the trajectory of our businesses and most of these you know, businesses today that have been so successful are based in the US, but that isn't a given. Um, so I think that's an enormous potential repercussion of all of this. Several big Chinese ones, too. Yeah. What I'd love to, uh, to, to ask of both you, of you is, um, what are the actions that people can take? You know, whether they're a business leader, whether they're someone engaging with their uh, legislator or a policymaker, uh, you know, whether or not they're an individual worker, what are the sorts of things that people should think about when they think about this future of work, um, you know, with all the things that are changing? The first thing I think about is that we actually have to believe it can be different. I really hung up on this divine right of kings idea. There was a time when a set of people decided that they didn't buy that anymore, you know, and when we won the American Revolution and, and the, you know, the British resigned, George the third thought that George Washington would be crowned king in America and was utterly astonished that he went back to his farm. We basically had a new idea about how to do things. And I think we have this incredible moment uh, you know, where people are, as, as uh, Zoe said, disaffected. There is gonna be a revolution. I mean, Andy McAfee said over breakfast one morning, he said all this stuff about the, the robots taking over, the people will rise up long before the robots do. If we don't take this moment to rethink our economy and our society in a really profound way, we're gonna be in for a century of revolution and strife at a time when we're already gonna be dealing with um, you know, climate change and we're really facing potentially the collapse of modern civilization unless we do things radically differently. And I think we have to stop making little tweaks around the edges and assuming that everything is okay. We have to actually think far more boldly about what we do in the age of immense technological change which could produce credible wealth for all of society and yet is somehow been designed to only produce wealth for a much smaller group of people. And it's designed that way. And the first thing we have to do is to believe that we could design it better. 
Zoe, what are things that people can do? No, I completely agree with Tim. I think the most fundamental thing is people should look at the tools and technology that they have created and figure out how they can be deployed to enable people to participate in the labor market differently. For example, eBay, um, growth global markets you talked about. 98% of people who sell goods on eBay are multinationals. They may or may not know it, whereas only 3% of small and medium-sized businesses sell globally. Mm -hmm. And you don't mean large multinationals. No, they're small and medium-sized businesses, but they sell their products all over the world, and it goes to Elizabeth, New Jersey. But it's exported over eBay. And I could give you many other examples of how what each and every one of you is doing could be deployed as a way mm -hmm. for people to learn in a modular way, to find out what skills they have, to see what the jobs look like. You know, advanced manufacturing jobs, uh, people don't see themselves in those because their uncle or their brother isn't working in advanced manufacturing. But if their Facebook friends showed them what advanced manufacturing jobs looked like and that people like them were doing those jobs, then they could see themselves. You know, Google has got a significant effort going now to try to figure out how to use its assets to help people see better what jobs look like, both its business assets and philanthropic, but yeah. I urge you to think about your business assets because that's where we'll get the capital to continue and sustain and grow these uh, activities. But I think there's a tremendous amount people can do if they simply ask themselves the question, how can I be a disruptor in a way that is going to work to advantage many people? One thing that I would also add is it's so important to dissociate work from jobs. Because if you find work that needs doing, it will turn into jobs. When I started my business, it wasn't a job. There was work that needs doing. My publishing business started, it was like, oh, there's no manual for VI, these odd Unix programs. We were technical writing consultants. When we didn't have a job, there was still work. So we did the work, and then we just started selling the books on the side. And it turned out to be a way better job than the one that we you know, were getting from other people. You know, because we basically focused on, you know, hey, there's something that needs doing here. There's no good documentation. And we started producing it, and people beat a bath to our door. You look around, and there's so much work. So I'd like to open it up. Yeah, please, if you would uh, identify yourself briefly, and uh, I'd love your question. Hi, well done. My name is Jason Ma. If you have one or two pieces of advice for the G20 governments, right, starting from the prime ministers, uh, presidents, you got eyes and ears, what would they be, given today's theme? I would say the first thing, again, would be focus on real problems. Think about how do you make life better for people? How do you solve problems for people? You know, technology, business, the economy, this is all about solving real problems for your people. Yeah, my answer to that question has been um, that countries should create national digital economy strategies. I don't think we're in a place in this country where we'll do it, so I'm working with governors all over the country so that governors will create a digital economy strategy. But I think that uh, means looking at your businesses and understanding where business growth can come from that can employ um, lots of people and can employ people who don't have four-year college diplomas and higher degrees and those jobs are there and the businesses won't grow if we don't 
uh, expand the labor market for them. So I would have a strategy for business growth. I'd have a strategy for labor market training. And it's extremely important, and this is what I'm looking to the private sector for, because we won't have a national strategy here, and other countries are developing them. Um, but we really need the very tools and technologies that we're using for uh, the higher end of the market to apply to the 70%. And if we do that, I think we'll find much more innovation that will affect the, the whole market. Surprisingly, the jobs at the upper end are more static than the jobs in the middle. If you really want innovation around how to drive the labor market through tools and data, that innovation's gonna come in the middle. And that's where our businesses need to grow. That's where the bulk of the jobs are and, and will be. And that's true globally. On that digital transformation by government, one of the things that's always been true of new technology is government is actually often the customer that kickstarts a huge new industry. Government actually could become a customer for digital transformation as well as funder of innovation or whatever. Right. No, that's very and, true, and, and that's uh, part of what we are, are mm -hmm. working on. That's part of our integration is having the government spend its dollars wisely yeah. to drive uh, creating the transparency of data, to drive the creation and sharing of data, and, and, also uh, and just, the training. Just the, you know, the implementation of government programs. How do we instrument government programs so that they can become more intelligent, so they can work better? And you start thinking, wow, we could actually you know, reinvent government so that it works as well as the best tech applications. That's actually this wonderful way to do a digital transformation of the largest customer in the country. Uh, that would be an enormous opportunity. There is a, a couple exhibits in the book that show investments by governments and private sector in training have been declining in a multi-year level uh, across the G20. Hi, Caroline Fairchild with LinkedIn. In the face of rising automation, how probable is the idea of universal basic income? I think we should be testing it, not universally, but testing it in a targeted way, you know, doing A-B testing of what happens when you do it. So there are experiments. I think we should see government experimenting. Let's try it in some area and see what happens. Um, but I also think that there are other ways to do the equivalent and that they may be more usefully targeted. I mentioned earlier this idea that you know, education as an intervention where you don't only take people out of the workforce, you give them new skills. And I go, you know, like, would we be better off giving everybody an education benefit of a different kind, you know, where we pay you uh, to learn new skills, you know, as opposed to just giving you money? Now, again, I think there's something wonderful about the idea of just giving people money, uh, but we actually have, you know, hundreds of years of experience that shows that making sure that people get education is, well, that's another thing. Let's experiment with that. Let's just do lots of experiments. Uh, but the main thing is to get more money into people's hands, however we do it, as opposed to letting all this capital sit idle on the sidelines while people are effectively, uh, you, know, uh, you know, basically we've got this atherosclerotic, uh, atherosclerotic uh, you know, circulatory system in our economy where there's just not enough money getting to ordinary people who can spend it, who can spend on whatever they want. Throw it out of an airplane, uh, do it with uh, UBI, do it with targeted benefits, uh, however you do it, uh, get more money into people's hands. The reason that are unclear, economists prefer helicopters. Uh, <laughs> Zoe, any, any thoughts? Yeah. Um, I, 
you know, I think people want to feel engaged. They want to feel they contribute. They want to grow in their uh, earning potential. And um, I'm not a fan of that proposal. Hi, my name is Eric Dunn. Uh, question for both of you is, do you have concrete examples of arguments that you've used with, um, let's say, large employers to convince them to, rather than just seeking to automate the current work of their employees to actually use technology to augment the capacities mm -hmm. of their employees yeah. and, and realize the full potential. That's actually the central lesson of technology. Augment people, you will be more successful. First of all, I talk a lot about Uber and Lyft. We have a lot more people delivering driving services than we ever had in the taxi industry because we have this cognitive augmentation in the app that tells people there's a passenger, you know, three blocks over or, you know, half a mile away or two miles away or five miles away. You can go find them. And not only that, that app will teach you how to get them to their destination wherever it is. You know, that's like, so that's a cognitive augmentation with a smartphone app and a dispatch system that's so far more advanced it's put, you know, many more people at work. Amazon, uh, you know, put 45,000 robots into their warehouses, hired 250,000 people because they didn't say, we're just gonna make more money doing the same thing more cheaply. They said, we're gonna augment our warehouse workers so they can get more products out faster. We now do same day delivery in many locations of more and more products. And you go, bang, you put people to work. Uh, so, uh, you know, how would we do that in healthcare, for example? Uh, how would we do that in education? Give our teachers superpowers through uh, you know, digital education so they could do more. Or the Apple store. Everybody else was taking salespeople out of the stores. Apple put lots more people in, gave them superpowers with their smartphone apps, got rid of the cash registers, replaced it, all of a sudden become the most productive retail stores in the world. Uh, so, you know, there are lots of examples when you look around. In addition to Skillful, which is working on the ground and trying to change the labor markets, we also have something going at Marco called the Rework America Task Force, and some of the people in this room have been involved with that. And one of the things we're interested in is how uh, we can use artificial intelligence that we're working on now is using AI to make jobs safer. So uh, that's in construction. It's very important in healthcare. How do you use AI to make a whole range of healthcare uh, services uh, safer. And um, I think there's just tremendous potential for people to have a lived experience of working alongside technology or having AI uh, enhance their work um, if we can get people into the digital economy labor market. Um, another example that I find very appealing because I spend a lot of time in other countries is Google Translate. Now, the notion that I could have, you know, wireless earphones that are going to tell me um, what someone's just said in a language I can understand is a tremendous enabler. So I think there's a lot of opportunities for people to experience AI and automation as really additive if we can get them engaged in this part of the labor market. And I know we could talk for the rest of the evening uh, with these uh, terrifically thoughtful colleagues, but love ending this section on a, a note of optimism. So thank you very much. I want to thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The New World of Work by the McKinsey Global Institute. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate us on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends. To learn more about the research discussed in today's episode, visit mckinsey.com MGI or follow at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter.